Since the beginning of the pandemic, the American Medical Association has led the fight against COVID-19. As the nation copes with the effects of the crisis, we continue to offer tireless advocacy and expert resources. I'm Todd Unger, and this is AMA Moving Medicine, a podcast from the American Medical Association. This episode is part of an ongoing series featuring critical insights from the physicians and healthcare professionals on the front lines of the pandemic. Hello, this is the American Medical Association's COVID-19 update. I'm your host, Todd Unger, AMA's Chief Experience Officer. Today, we have a special guest, John M. Berry, author of multiple award-winning books, including the number one New York Times bestseller, The Great Influenza, the story of the deadliest pandemic in history, which was also named 2004's Outstanding Book on Science and Medicine by the National Academies of Science Sciences. Uh, since writing it, Mr. Berry has become a sought-after expert on influenza preparedness and response. Uh, Mr. Barry, in the book, uh, you say that you wanted to see how American society dealt with simultaneous uh, challenges of two wars, one of nature against humans on top of a war of humans against each other, to see how people that had the power to do something about it, whether they were politicians or scientists, how they reacted, and the lessons we could learn. And that's pretty much the direction of the discussion uh, that I'd like to have today with you. Um, For starters, uh, I would love it if you could give some quick context context on the 1918 pandemic and how it differed from what we're seeing with COVID-19 now in terms of severity and contagion and cases and deaths and things like that. Well, uh, you know, very briefly, of course, it was much more virulent. It killed between 50 and 100 million people adjusted for population. That would be 225 to 450 million people today. Uh, It was probably less... uh, transmissible, uh, estimated one-third of the world's population was infected, and the U.S. actually seemed to be a little less than that. looks like about 28%. Um, It was much, much faster. This is one of the biggest differences. Uh, Influenza is general. Everything about it is quicker. The incubation period, how long you're sick, how long you shed virus, and so forth. Uh, So in 1918, probably two-thirds of the deaths were in an incredibly compressed time frame of 14 or 15 weeks in the fall of 1918. And in any particular city, it was faster than that. Generally, six to 10 weeks, herd immunity was established, and then it looked like the disease was gone. Uh, Even if we had not intervened to interrupt transmission, you know, this would have lasted much, much longer, just a serial uh, infections, just everything takes longer. Uh, So we did, of course, intervene, which I entirely support. I think the herd immunity idea has been pretty much disproved. Even Sweden has all but formally abandoned their effort. And in Manaus, city of 2 million people in Brazil, then, uh, where 76% of the population was infected. We now see a variant that is surging again. So the natural infection, you know, whether it was pursued as policy in in Sweden, though they don't use the term, or just happened in Brazil, didn't seem to be very effective. Yeah, uh, I, the, uh, yeah, I was uh, talking I to uh, one of my, uh, my uh, uh, colleagues about this and said, you know, 
be glad you weren't around in 1918. This was something that could come on in a period of 12 hours. You're turning dark blue and, and, right. and dying. Right, right. I mean, you know, most of the deaths were probably bacterial pneumonia, secondary infections, which is still today six to eight percent case mortality, but a very, very sizable number. We don't know the exact number was probably more directly due to the virus or the immune cytokine storms and so forth. There are clearly were deaths in 12 to 24 hours. Uh, the observers who noted them are just too good sign reputable to to dismiss them uh so it was a much more intense and horrific experience by the same token what we are going through today in terms of the duration uh and the economic damage it's greater today mm -hmm. one of the uh, key differences uh that uh, you noted in the in the book with the 1918 influenza was that it was most deadly among younger people. It's almost kind of the yeah. opposite about COVID-19. What, what explains that difference uh, and how did that affect our response? Well, uh, and incidentally, that was as mild as 2009's pandemic was. Uh, for the people, it was almost, not 2009 was almost two entirely different experiences. The vast majority got a, something even more mild than normal seasonal flu. But for that tiny minority, it was like 1918, including the age of the death. You know, the, I think the median age in, in 2009 for deaths was in the like 30, 31. And in, in uh, 1918, it was in the mid to late 20s. Uh, the hypothesis about 1918 is that People's immune systems, of course, stronger when you're younger and overreacted, cytokine storm and so forth. Uh, the irony today is older people uh, like myself, you know, our immune systems aren't strong enough to fight the disease off, but apparently they're strong enough to mount enough of an immune response once the virus uh, gets established to, to create very serious problems. Mm -hmm. Another similarity today, of course, we have long COVID. Um, something very akin to that, although they didn't name it, was clearly the case in 1918. You know, whether that was or, or is today directly because of the virus, which would, of course, be a little bit different because they're different viruses. But to the extent that that is a result of the immune system's response to the virus, uh, that would probably be pretty similar today as it was in 1918. Yeah, you noted uh, that there were some uh, those after effects, including impacts on you know the brain. Uh, uh, I think it's very well established neurological impact uh, in 1918. And the other thing, you know, seasonal influenza viruses just about never bind to cells in the lung. That was not the case in 1918. Just as with SARS-CoV-2, the 1918 virus very clearly could bind to cells deep in the lung. So you're starting out with a pretty serious condition if that happened to be the case. And of course, it also could bind to cells in the upper respiratory tract, which made it easily transmissible. Mm -hmm. Well, you wrote that in the other pandemics, kind of the major ones across the century, that you'd seen uh, a pattern of waves uh, where kind of there was a 
kind of a first one that may be a bit more mild and a second one that was much more deadly. Are we seeing that pattern now? Because it feels like we're just being in one wave. Yeah, I think it's different today. Uh, you know, this is all hypothesis and speculation on my part, and I'm not a virologist, I'm an historian. But the first wave in 1918, number one, it was mild, so mild that you saw a medical journal articles saying this looks and smells like influenza, but it's not killing enough people, so it can't be influenza. The other thing about the first wave in 1918 is it was very hit or miss. Uh, a lot of cities, we don't really know in detail. My guess is probably a majority of cities, at least in the United States, didn't even see a first wave. Los Angeles didn't record a single influenza death in the spring of 1918. There were clearly uh, well-established uh, first wave experiences in New York and in Chicago, although they didn't, uh, they weren't really noticed at the time. Uh, you know, whether the virus wasn't as great as it later became at infecting people you know, it, it, it's hard to say. In Western Europe, a little bit later in the spring, uh, in fact, those waves in New York and Chicago I referred to tended to be earlier, like January, February. Uh, um, in Western Europe, it, it did get uh, more widespread, mm -hmm. uh, but it was still very mild. The lethal second wave, which was what spread around the world very rapidly, even without air travel, uh, that was extraordinarily widespread. It got everywhere, you know, villages in the middle of the African jungle, uh, Inuit uh, villages pretty deep into Alaska. Uh, so, so today, in fact, I wrote an op-ed back in April uh, for, the, for the New York Times in which I predicted Based actually on 1918, I, I predicted that the summer would not provide relief. Uh, and the reason was that I thought susceptibility was more important than seasonality. You know, uh, it does seem to be true, clearly in influenza, and we think in uh, SARS-CoV-2, that uh, temperature and humidity do affect the ability of the virus to transmit. But in the summer, this time around, we had, you know, 95% of the population susceptible, highly transmissible virus. So I didn't expect much relief. What influences uh, the spread of the virus, certainly in the U.S. And, and probably most of the world, was our control measures. You know, obviously, public health measures, non-pharmaceutical interventions, they work. They have worked in some countries better than I think anybody in public health would possibly have imagined that you can completely control, if you do it right, a virus is transmissible as this, strictly with public health measures. That's astounding. You know, I was part of the initial teams in the Bush administration that recommended NPIs. Uh, I don't think anybody on those teams thought they could be more successful. Mm -hmm. Obviously, we didn't do a great job with that in the United States, but we did use them and they did tamp down the virus. We never got the baseline low enough. Um, but I think that was really the, as you said in your question, 
that we've seen more continuity. And I think that's more a function of releasing the various measures or people get tired of complying with them and so forth and so on. And that has really determined uh, the spread. Mm -hmm. You said in that that same op-ed that the most important lesson to be learned from the 1918 pandemic is to tell the truth. Can you elaborate on that? Because I learned a lot in reading about the situation then. What do you, how, how would you elaborate on that? Well, it's not too much to elaborate on, you know. <laughs> Another way of putting it is you don't manage the truth, you tell the truth. Uh, you know, if you are going to rely on people complying with public health measures to have any impact on the spread of, of anything, then they better pay attention to what you're saying. And if you have a mixed message, that's not going to work. If you lie to them, they will find that out fairly quickly. And once you lose credibility, then people aren't going to pay any attention to you. Mm-hmm. So clearly the best strategy, both short and long term, in any crisis situation, and particularly, again, when you're looking for public compliance with your advice, is to tell the truth and to keep telling it. You took care of the nation. It's time for the nation to take care of you. The AMA stood by America's physicians and patients during the pandemic, and we're not stopping there. We're fixing prior authorization, leading the charge on Medicare payment reform, supporting telehealth, fighting scope creep, and reducing physician burnout. It's time to rebuild, and the AMA is ready. To learn more about the AMA Recovery Plan for America's Physicians, go to ama-assn.org slash time to rebuild. Yeah, one of the In things the that I was uh, unaw- you know, okay. unaware of or I hadn't uh, remembered was, you know, basically there was a, you know, a morale directive in 1918. It was kind of no right. bad news. And so it was really, a, you know, withholding of information about the, uh, the pandemic itself uh, as kind of the primary, you know, narrative there. No bad news. <laughs> so I guess. Right. The- Very much so. Uh, you know, the motivation was quite different. We were at war, so they were trying to keep morale up. And they thought, as you say, any bad news would hurt morale and therefore hurt the war effort. Um, that's a lot different from a political decision to advance an individual's political interests would seem to have been the case this time around, but the result was the same. They're not exactly, a, for one thing, in 1918, national public health leaders were saying things like, this is ordinary influence by another name. However, nobody in the public believed that. This time around, people in the public did believe Uh, efforts to uh, minimize the impact of this disease and still believe it. In 1918, that did not happen because the virulence of the virus, uh, you know, pretty much demonstrated within a matter of hours uh, that this was something to be taken seriously. I mean, you had, for example, in Philadelphia, as I wrote in the book, you literally have priests driving horse-drawn carts 
down the street calling upon people to bring out their dead. You had bodies staying in houses for 48, 72 hours. You had, as you said yourself earlier, people dying in 12 hours. Uh, horrific symptoms. Uh, the book quotes a physician writing a colleague that uh, people's cyanosis was so intense that he had difficulty distinguishing uh, African-American troops from Caucasian troops. Uh, some of the most, uh, most frightening symptoms, you know, where we have good data in some army camps, you had 15% of the troops had uh, nosebleed. Uh, you had a small minority, but it still clearly happened. People would bleed from their eyes and ears. That's pretty terrifying, particularly to a lay person. So when you have symptoms like this, when you have deaths piling up, when every city in the country is running out of coffins, nobody is taking you seriously if you're saying this is ordinary influenza by another name. Uh, the re all that did was create an alienation in the population. It basically said, you're not getting any help from us, from people in power, so you are on your own. Trump left it to the states, but in this instance, the government basically left it to the, the population. It was very alienating. And, uh, you know, I noted in the book, Victor Vaughn, who was dean of the University of Michigan Medical School before the war. And during the war, he was head of uh, communicable diseases for the army. And right at the peak of the pandemic, he said, if the current rate of acceleration continues for a few more weeks, civilization could easily disappear from the face of the earth, mm -hmm. unquote. So that's, that's how bad it got at the very peak in the worst uh, circumstances. Um, uh, obviously, with COVID-19, we're not facing anything like that, thank God. Yeah, thankfully. It's interesting that even, you know, in 1918, you wrote that the modelers, you know, concluded that layering interventions like and, uh, you know, social distancing, which you were talking about, you know, in this book 20, almost 20 years ago, you know, were required to flat, flatten the curve. That's not a term they, they use, but basically to relieve the pressure on the healthcare system. You started talking about NPIs. You know, were there other learnings about interventions that worked or didn't work that we've been able to kind of learn from and apply? Well, I, you know, a, a lot of our ideas, number one, they come from common sense, would have probably come up with them whether 1918 had happened or not. Uh, you know, but the social, and of course, quarantine and so forth, that goes back way, way, way before uh, uh, 1918. Uh, but the social distancing, uh, closing, bars, theaters, places in churches, even uh, things like that. They, they did seem to work in 1918. Um, Modlers uh, looked at it. Uh, Richard Hatchett and, and Carter Metcher. Uh, Richard did now run CP and, and uh, CPI in, in London. Uh, Carter Metcher is at the VA now. They were both at the National Security Council and they did it. Uh, Marty Cetrone at CDC uh, with a lot of data from Howard Markell at the University of Michigan did an even more comprehensive study. And to be per perfectly candid, 
although I always supported NPIs, uh, I thought that the conclusion the modelers came up with, well, I, again, I supported the conclusions, uh, but I was much less enthusiastic about the impact that NPIs would have than most of them were. Uh, and clearly I was mistaken on that. Uh, they, they've been remarkable in how effective they've been when people comply with them. Uh, probably my, I became somewhat skeptical based on army data. Uh, there were 120 army camps, 99 of them imposed quarantine and things like other NPIs, 21 didn't do anything. There was no statistical difference between the two, the camps that did and those that did not. Not just wasn't statistically significant, there was no difference. But the person who did that study was George Soper, a very good, great, even pioneer epidemiologist who later did the first epidemiological studies of cancer and was the first head of the American Cancer Society. Um, he not only looked at, he not only did the quantifying analysis, quantifying uh, analysis, but he did a qualitative analysis as well. And he discovered that in the very few camps that rigidly adhered to the various NPIs, they did benefit, but there were so few of them that it didn't register statistically in the larger universe of 120 camps and probably about 2 million people. Um, so my thinking was, if you couldn't successfully sustain compliance over a period of weeks in an army camp in the middle of the war, you weren't gonna be very successful in a civilian community mm -hmm. uh, in peacetime. Uh, you know, we have been more, much more successful, or some countries have been incredibly successful, far more than I ever would have imagined, as I said earlier. Uh, other places we haven't done so well, but a lot of that is, is bad leadership, frankly. Well, thank you so much, uh, Mr. Barry, for being here today. It's uh, fascinating to talk to you and uh, reflect on on the book and how much that I learned from that. Uh, really appreciate you being here. Uh, that's it for today's COVID-19 update. We'll be back with another segment tomorrow. In the meantime, for resources on COVID-19, visit ama-assn.org slash COVID-19. Thanks for joining us. Please take care. This content was originally published as part of AMA's COVID-19 daily video updates. Find the latest at ama-assn.org slash COVID update. I'm Todd Unger, and this is AMA Moving Medicine, a podcast from the American Medical Association. You can also subscribe to other great AMA podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, and Stitcher, or visit ama-assn.org slash podcasts. Thank you for listening.